Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. They took the credit for your second symphony, rewritten by machine and new technology. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, probably in a recent podcast, because we quoted that song not long ago. Yes. It buggles the mind. It does buggle the mind. <laughs> uh, today, though, we're talking about... Uh, something entirely, well, not something entirely different, but um, something a little, uh, I don't know. We are going to, we're concentrating, we're concentrating today on a particular company. And this is going to be a multi-part podcast because the company has such a long history that we can't sum it up in one episode. It's just, it's too much information. Um, and it would just mean that if we were to try and push it all into 30 minutes, you really wouldn't learn anything. 
Right. As a matter of fact, we had uh, we had a request for this at one point, I believe. Yeah, I think so. We've had a few people ask us about this. I I, I don't have any specifics to point to because we've received quite a few over the history of our podcast. True. So we are going um, to talk today about IBM. Yes. Big Blue. International business machines. Yes, and it's it's got an incredibly long history. Uh, let me just ask you, Chris. Just curious. Just when when you hear the 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 letters IBM, what's the first thing you think of? Um, well, I probably think of the uh, the current computers, mm-hmm. but mainly because, well, you know, just to be honest, um, those of us in the editorial department at HowStuffWorks.com, a lot of us still have uh, IBM laptops, which are the uh, machines that they gave us. On, yeah, IBM uh, ThinkPads what, specifically. Which is kind of funny because... This actually comes after uh, the company made an agreement with the Chinese computer manufacturer Lenovo. Right. So they're IBM branded, but they're actually Lenovo machines. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, that's probably just because it's there every day. I think of that. But I also think of um, a number of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mainframes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think of the IBM Selectric typewriter that I have. I can't wait to talk about that. Um, So, yeah, I mean. Yeah, for me, it's uh, the first thing I think of is uh, the – IBM 286 that my family had when I was a kid. Uh, We started off with other computers, which I've talked about in the past, but the computer that my dad got that ended up being the workhorse Mm -hmm. was an IBM 286. We did eventually upgrade to a 386 and a 486 further down the line, but that 286 kind of was what I cut my teeth on once I I got beyond the Apple IIe. No, no, no. no. You're not supposed to chew on them. Well, I realized that, but I was a late bloomer. Anyway, uh, the the personal computer age is very late in IBM's history because the company is very, very old. Yeah, it sort of depends on whom you ask how old it is. Yeah. Because IBM uh, actually sort of gives their their age tracks their age back a little differently than other people might right um and i found that out i actually uh, checked out a, a book from the library called uh, building ibm shaping an industry and its technology by emerson w pew mm-hmm. um and he actually tracks uh the founding of ibm past where ibm does he he, he goes back to a, an inventor named herman hollerith ah uh, yes Yes, Herman Hollerith, he uh, created a tabulating machine, didn't he? Yes, he did. Um, he actually got his uh, his first patent application in on in September 1884. Now, that's not the, when he started the company, but that's when he started working on tabulating machines. Now, there are other people who are doing other related work, too, because IBM actually was founded f- by the combination of three companies. Yeah, technically kind of a fourth company. Uh, the three companies specifically were um let's see it was the the uh the tabulating machine company uh-huh. which was uh, incorporated in 1896 mm-hmm. so you've got that one you've got the computing scale company which was incorporated in 1891 and the international time recording company uh organized in 1900 and then there was also the bundy manufacturing company which was incorporated in 1889 now a lot of the bundy uh, uh, properties had been incorporated into International Time Recording Company already. So you're already talking about companies that have been undergoing mergers and acquisitions. Um, you had people like Julius E. Petrat, who in 1885 secured a patent for a device that he called a computing scale. That was what created the foundation for the computing scale company. Uh, you had Herman Hollerith, who had the tabulation and punch card machines that he created. 
Uh, William L. Bundy, who was, of course, the founder of the Bundy Manufacturing Company, came up with a time recording device. He was actually a jeweler. And this guy came up with a time recording device that allowed employees to track their time based upon using special keys. They would put a special key into this machine, turn the key, it would stamp uh, the time that they clocked in, and then they would turn the key at the end of the day, it would stamp the time they clocked out, and it helped keep track of how many hours they worked. Then you also had Dr. Alexander Day, D-E-Y, and he created a similar time uh, timekeeping device, but it didn't use keys. Instead, you put the names of the employees on this machine, and there was a, a mechanical pointer. You would aim the pointer at the employee's name. You'd put a punch card in, push a button, and it would then stamp the employee's sheet, which was inside the machine, uh, with the time that they clocked in and clocked out. So you had all these different companies. And remember, this is this is the age where we're really starting to get into mechanical devices. Mm-hmm. So most of these devices are mechanical in nature. There are actual physical gears and pistons, things like that, that are making stuff happen inside these machines. Yep. But so, it's not it's I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was gonna say it's it's actually in a way not any of these guys who created IBM. No it, it took someone from outside this group to really Form it together. Which, which the fun, and the funny part is, we've got all these inventors, but we're really talking about, or at least I am, talking about a businessman who a saw an financier. Op- yes, who saw an opportunity to uh, combine the companies and make some money by, you know, making a, uh, a building a merger between them. And his name was Charles R. Flint. Yes. So here we got a guy who looks at these companies, these individual companies that are all making various kinds of mechanical devices. And he says, hey, hang on a second. We could combine these because a lot of these are are creating devices specifically geared toward businesses. Yes. And if we were to combine these, we could combine the manufacturing power and the business power of these and and market it toward businesses, we could create an enormous corporation. Now I just have to convince the guys that this is a good idea. So he starts going to all these different companies and he submits merger uh, proposals. Mm-hmm. And eventually the companies agree to this and they form the Computing Tabulating Recording Corporation or CTR on June 16th, 1911. I got to say, these guys have a flair for an innovative name. Yes, the Computing Tabulating Recording Corporation. It was called Computing because of the computer scale we were talking about, which was not a computer computer. It was a, it was a scale that could very accurately measure weights. Computing scale. Yes. And, and then the tabulating being the tabulating from Hollerith and the recording being the time recording devices that we talked about earlier. Yes, Pew's book actually said that the the scale that they had come up with would uh, give you the information up front, so you didn't really have to do as much work with it. So it would actually do the the calculating for you. Yes, it would give you an idea of what was going on, which you know at the time was was pretty innovative. Yes, so we've got this major corporation forming in 1911, but here's a problem: who heads up this new corporation? Now, Flint was uh, pretty savvy, as was the board of directors for CTR. They knew that they could not necessarily just hire or, or promote someone from within one of those companies to be the head of the new corporation, because if they did, there's the danger that that person would favor one division over all the others. So if you were to promote someone up from the tabulating machine company, for example, that person might 
concentrate on that division of the new, the new mega company and ignore the others and then your, your business venture fails. So they had to find someone from outside this, this merger to head up the new company. I know who you're going to say. Yeah. But I, I, w- I would also like to add before we go on to this person. Sure. Um, that. Apparently, from what I understand, not everyone was thrilled with the way the merger was working out. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, Hollerith uh, and Flint didn't necessarily get along all that well. Right. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, apparently, Hollerith was uh, you know one of those rare business people where he was very egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, when he sold, uh, you know, the interest in his company to Flint, he insisted that everyone get a fair share. Mm-hmm. Of of the money, and apparently was very well liked within his own company before uh, he did that. And apparently, um, and I imagine that that would be something too to take into account when you are trying to make this decision on who you want to run the company. Because you know, if you've got people who uh, are already having you know personality problems, personality conflicts with the people at the top. Sure. Then you're you're certainly going to be aware of that and 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 try to avoid that conflict because otherwise you could scuttle the company. Yeah. But I think you're talking about uh, the person you wanted to mention next was someone who was brought in uh, as a general manager. Yes. Yes. From from the National Cash Register Corporation. NCR. Yeah. That person was Thomas J. Watson, Senior. And he was hired on May 4th, 1914. And that is the date that IBM uses as its founding. It considers Watson's arrival at, at the company. And remember, it's not called IBM yet. It's still CTR. But it, it considers his arrival to be the birth of IBM. And part of that reason is because Watson really instilled in the company an entire uh, array of marketing um, uh, principles and philosophies that he he had developed over the years. And that became IBM's sort of foundation for the way that they do business. Now, let's give a little background on Watson. Watson was a bit of a character, too. In fact, he, had, he was not exactly spotless in his history. Um, Watson, when he graduated college, uh, originally he wanted to be a teacher, but reportedly that job lasted all of one day before he quit. He then concentrated on becoming a salesman and, in fact, was a traveling salesman, uh, sal- selling, as I recall, pianos and organs to people in rural areas. It made me think of the music man. It was essentially Watson was was Professor Harold Hill. Uh, traveling. Except he was actually selling stuff instead of pr- trying to. Trying to and then getting out of town. Well, technically, Hill was selling stuff, too. He just was making promises that people could use it when he didn't right. intend to do it. He wanted to skip town as soon as the stuff came in. Fair point. Spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen the music. Man, I almost got you to spit water, too. That was great. So Watson then went on to uh, – he started – he opened up a butcher shop. He ended up eventually selling the butcher shop. But one thing he had to do was he had an NCR cash register in that butcher shop that was not completely paid for. So he had to kind of act as a liaison between the new owner of the butcher shop and NCR to kind of settle these payments. He started to bug the people at NCR for a job. And eventually they broke down and, and, and apprenticed him to someone at NCR as a salesman. And over time, Watson was able to make a name for himself as a salesman and later as a manager. He actually became known for running competitors out of business in certain markets. He would go into a market and find out ways to, to be able to, uh, to beat any competitor who, that was also selling a mechanical cash register machine. 
So, for example, he would go into a market and undercut all the competitors and sell cash registers at a loss just to bankrupt his uh, his competitors so that he could have a monopoly on the market. This eventually led to an antitrust lawsuit against him because he was monopolizing. Well, the first trial ended with a guilty verdict and a $5,000 fine and I think a two-year sentence in jail, something like that. Anyway, it was a, it was it was unusual for a jail sentence to go along with this kind of uh, a, a, a charge, but Watson ended up getting one. He appealed that, and during the appeals process, the government decided uh, he won the right to appeal. The government decided that it was not worth the time and money to pursue a second uh, trial, so he, the charges were dismissed. But, uh, yeah, so Watson was a, he was a kind of a cutthroat businessman as well. So during his days at NCR, he did something that ended up being very important to IBM's philosophy. It was in a meeting in December in 1911. Do you know where I'm going with this? No, I don't. All right. It, it's a motto that IBM uses. Oh, right. That one. Yeah. So there's Watson in this meeting with NCR and he says, this is a quote, the trouble with every one of us is that we don't think enough. We don't get paid for working with our feet. We get paid for working with our heads. Thought has been the father of every advance since time began. I didn't think has cost the world millions of dollars. And then he wrote the word think in all capital letters in blue crayon on an easel. Blue. Think. Big things for uh, IBM, as it turns out. Yep. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that IBM can trace one of its central mottos to another company, because this was before Watson came over. So then Watson does come over to the company and begins to lead it. Uh, he joined in 1914, and the company really starts to take off. You know, you've got all these different divisions that are uh, uh, concentrating on specific elements of their business, and uh, they just start really cranking out some interesting products, all for uh, businesses, by the way. Right, right. Well, let's put this, let's put it in perspective. So in 1914, according to IBM, when, uh, Thomas J. Watson Sr. joined the company, uh, it had 1,346 employees mm-hmm. and $9 million in revenue. Um, the gross income from sales, service, and rentals, uh, was about $4 million. Uh, and as a matter of fact, 100 shares of CTR stock. Uh, would set you back about three thousand dollars. Yes, so they they would make four million dollars in a year, but uh, out of that, their earnings were around a million. Right. So right. so you make four million, and after costs, you you rake in a million dollars. Um, yeah, I said actually it said nine. Uh, well, I'm looking at two different IBM documents. Yeah. One is uh, nine million in revenues, and the other says uh, four million from gross income. Yeah, that's what I had. The four million in gross income. Okay, was okay. The one I had. So, um, you know, yeah, it sounds like a little today. Keeping in mind that it's that's quite substantial. Yeah, 1914. Come and, on. And uh, if it sounds weird to say rentals, uh, Hollerith actually, when he did his tabulating machine, uh, would actually rent the equipment out. Yeah. Um, so he did not sell people machines. So at the time, you know, this kind of equipment, uh, the sophisticated mechanical computer equipment, actually, he was one of the first people to use, uh, electrical, um, 
tabulating devices. Yeah, we're, we're getting into the electromechanical era here. So yeah, but I mean, you didn't you didn't buy that necessarily. You would no. rent that from someone. And we're actually so, you might wonder what these tabulating devices were used for. Well, they were often. I mean, they were used to classify information in a way that could be sorted and categorized in various ways relatively quickly. You know, much more quickly than humans could. In fact, it was originally used for the census. He worked for yes. uh, uh, Hollerith worked for the census in 1880, I believe, and he actually. Uh, his boss was saying it would be really nice if we could come up with a machine to cut down on all this work because this is a real pain in the neck. Yeah. So we did. Yeah, and this this invention plays a much darker role in a few years, and we'll touch on that because it is an important element of IBM's history. But I think that's why Pew started with Hollerith was because that is the most computer-like of all the things, yeah. of all the of the original businesses that CTR was involved with. Yeah, so, so – just a couple of highlights in the early years of Watson's uh, – uh, uh, what am I going to call it? Watson being the president and general manager of, of CTR. Uh, in 1919, they have the company's implementation of electric synchronization for the control and regulation of complete time and programming systems. Yep. And that's th- that's true. Um, now that you pointed out, I mean, they they uh, introduced the first electric synchronized time clock system. Yeah, um, which again is very computer like. It's just a a component, right? That's, that's part of that. And I I I'd just like to add one sort of uh, foreshadowing date uh, a couple years before that in 1917, mm-hmm. uh, CTR decided to enter Canada. Uh, and decided instead of using CTR, they would use a different name. They decided to call themselves International, International Business, Business Machines. Machines. Yeah, so 1917. In 1918, they registered that name in New York, but did not use it at that time. So, uh, yeah, in, in 1920, they introduced the Lock Autograph Recorder, which was the uh, the first complete school time control system. Uh, they also launched the Electric Accounting Machine, so that's kind of a predecessor to the calculator. Uh and uh, they acquired a company called the Ticketograph Company of Chicago in 1921. And they also started buying up more patents. Uh, IBM, to this day, has more than a thousand patents. A thousand? No, they had more than a thousand in the 70s. But yes, far more than a thousand. So, and some of those were developed in-house, and some of them they've purchased. So, th- in those early years, we get up to February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1924. Watson has an, an idea. Yes. He decides that this IBM name that they're using in Canada is a good name and that it, sh- it really reflects the, the business more than CTR does. Um, the, the business at this point is international. They have offices uh, elsewhere besides the United States. And so they think, well, we're going to re- rebrand ourselves. We're going to be called International Business Machines or IBM. Uh, and by now, so this is 10 years after he's he's taken the reins. The uh, the gross income for the company is at and remember it was at four million before it's at eleven million now with a net earnings of around two million and right, right. There, there's more than three thousand employees so they've essentially doubled the size of the number of employees that that, that they hired. Yes. Now um, going back uh, just for a second to Hollerith, his yep. his tabulating machines used punch cards, which we've yes. talked about in the past. Um, in 1923, they introduced the first electric key punch. Now, to record information on these punch cards, you have to have something that pops out the little <laughs> chads. chads. Yeah. Um, actually, or, or the, just punches a hole in the right spot. Right. Originally, they did use a circular punch, like you would see in you know a traditional hole punch. Yes. Um, but they were they were becoming more sophisticated, adding this functionality along as they went. 
Um, and uh, by 1928, the punched card could now hold as much as 80 columns worth of information, um, which also helped out significantly with what they could do. Yeah. Um, then, of course, we're getting close to the Great Depression in 1930. Yeah, here's an interesting thing. So in 1930, you get the Great Depression, but IBM still does pretty well, right? They're not they're not hurting as badly as other companies. In fact, Nowhere near. at that point, their gross income was $19 million and their net earnings $7 million with 6,300 employees. So IBM's actually employing people at the same time that other folks are finding themselves out of work. Uh, so IBM was actually doing quite well. Well, of course, you know, at that time, people were uh, laying people off because yep. they couldn't afford or going out of business entirely. Um, meanwhile, this would these machines would help people streamline their business efforts. So they wouldn't have to hire as many humans yep. to do the work. So well, and, I mean, they kept sense. on developing other things. They developed a, a public address and signaling system for schools. They called it the schoolmaster. That's not a joke. That just sounds, that just sounds so, I don't know. Sinister? Yes. Anyway, so, uh, 1934. Now we're two decades out from when Watson took control. They're, remember, they're grossing around 19 million and earning around 7 million, so that's much more than the 4 million and 1 million from two decades before. And they're employing 7,613 people, so. Yeah, uh, the, the company, the company is really doing well and the development is really just gonna explode over the next few decades. Like to the point where it's, it's almost impossible to believe how big it got. I, uh, I had my first snicker moment, uh, in 1934 because Did it satisfy you? Well, <laughs> because it apparently, uh, they decided to divest themselves of the scale yeah. division. So they sold it to Hobart, uh, which, if you if you're thinking back and going, I know I know that name. That's because they're still in business, and as apparently from from what I understand, uh, Mr. Watson was a little concerned because, as it turns out, immediately that business took off after they after they got rid of it. So I went, well, there you go. It's uh, whoops. They can't always do everything well all the time, right? Well, you know, they they made it a decision based on what they thought would happen, and right. You know? In 1935, IBM introduced the International Proof Machine, which synchronized 24 adding machines together, and it was meant to process checks in, in banks. It was meant as a, a processing system behind the scenes. But eventually, people found other uses for it, and, uh, and you could think of it as a precursor to the computer. Um, it could only do yeah, – it, it had a limited number of operations it could do, and uh, it wasn't a true computer in the sense that we think of today. But it, it showed that by, you know, IBM was thinking, how can we create uh, more sophisticated devices without necessarily making bigger ones? In this case, it was linking lots of lots of different adding machines together. Now, keep in, think about what we're talking about here. As we're going on through this timeline, IBM is finding ways to make crunching numbers easier. Yeah. They're they're finding new ways to to compress the number of of items you could put in a punch card. They're finding uh new ways to link machines together to increase cr- uh processing power. Yes. Uh with these machines. And no, we don't think of that in terms of again, the IBM laptops that we're using uh as we d- record the podcast obviously have far more processing power than that. But gradually over time they're innovating and coming up with new ideas. Yeah, they in, in 35, they also came up with the first successful electric, electric typewriter. typewriter. Yep. Yep. So uh, no, we'll get more into the electric typewriters a little later. Uh, in 37, they introduced a test scoring machine. Um, so this is kind of all you folks out there who get to play those, take those standardized tests. 
this is sort of the grandfather to those machines, the Scantron type stuff. But this is uh, this was a little earlier than that. But still, same principle. In 1940, they came out with the pencil mark sensing rep- reproducer. I almost yeah. said reproducer. Uh, you know, of course, everyone's taking these tests on computers now. So, so in the, between 37 <laughs> and 40, there's a little event, big event. We have to a talk little about. big event. Yeah. So World War II. Oh, Here's yes. where we got to get in some problematic. Uh, stuff. There was an IBM subsidiary company called Dehomag, Deutsch Hollerith Maschinen Gesellschaft, and that was the uh, that yeah. was the full name. So yeah, just just as an aside, the, um, Mr. Hollerith had been working on building the business internationally yes. even before he sold to CTR. Yes. So you know they he had businesses around the world already. Now they were small. Yeah. But they were divisions of his company, and yes. This is one of them. So, yeah, this was kind of an IBM subsidiary that, that Hollerith actually ended up selling 90% of the company back to IBM mm-hmm. because the company was in some financial problems. World War One bankrupted Germany, right? I mean, it, Germany was in dire economic straits after World War One, and Holl- this, this company was affected by that. So part of in order to stay solvent they sold 90% of the company back to IBM. So IBM owns this company and here's where things get really dark and murky. Uh there's an uh, author and researcher by the name of Edwin Black who wrote a full book about IBM and its role possibly connected to the Holocaust. And now Black alleges that IBM was not just um uh aware of what was happening but somewhat complicit in what was happening. IBM uh they they obviously do not agree with that assessment. And in fact, the more you know about Watson, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't know these people clearly, but the more I, I learned about Watson, the less I was convinced that he was the sort of person who would actively be complicit in this. But here's what happened. Deho Mag made this tabulation uh, uh, products and Hitler was very much interested in getting to know exactly how many Jews were in Germany at the time. And right. so they were using this tabulating process to track people, to, to classify people as either being Jewish or not Jewish. And by classifying generations of people, they could actually track people back. If they, if they claimed that they weren't Jewish, they, you know, the Germans could look at the generation before, the generation before them, and see if there were any Jewish ancestors. And if there were, those, you know, the, the people would be classified as being Jewish. This came into play both in the ghettoization of the Jewish communities, where Jew, Jews were, were pushed into ghettos, and then later during the actual Holocaust. So Dehomag was played a big part in, in the Third Reich's plan to, to eliminate the Jews. And it's a tragic, horrible story. And Black, in his book, alleges that Watson himself was part of this, that he was taking advantage of the situation in order to make a profit. Uh, there is some stuff that kind of points to Watson being uh, at least at least a part plays a part in this, in that Hitler awarded Watson a medal. It was the Eagle with Star medal. But I should point out that in 1940, Watson returned the medal. He had been torn by this because apparently, at least according to IBM, Watson at first thought that the medal was on behalf of his work to try and establish world peace because Watson actually was concerned about creating a peaceful global environment. 
and that when he became convinced that that was not the case, he felt that it was necessary to return the medal, which in turn infuriated Hitler. And reportedly, Hitler then said that Watson would never again be welcome in Germany. Uh, once the United States and Germany entered World War II, once once war was declared between the two countries, Germany took control of DEHOMAG, and it was no longer under IBM's control at all. It was completely under German government control. So how involved was IBM? According to IBM, they were, you know, it was a subsidiary company. They did not have control over it. They had owned, they owned, um, interest in it, but they were not the ones making the decisions. So it's, it's a, like I said, a murky, complicated part of IBM's past. And it's, if you read Edwin Black's book, it paints a much darker picture for IBM than uh, what IBM says. I honestly don't know the truth. I cannot, I'm not going to pass judgment because I don't know. And also I should add that Watson has had uh, really backed a lot of humanitarian efforts before and after World War II, which again kind of suggests that he was not taking this complicit role. Right, right. Um, what I just meant to say was that there are situations uh, regarding many companies and individuals, and it, it's unclear. Uh, you know, many people I've read about in which, you know, how much they knew about what was truly going right, on, right. how whether or not they were being recruited to the cause, whether they were being uh, encouraged to supply, continue supplying when it was obvious that uh, there was a genocide going on. And and IBM, for its part, also began to work very closely with the United States military in producing uh, various parts and pieces that were being used in, in military applications. So there's that as well. Well, the, the, uh, I know that the uh, United States used IBM equipment to uh, work on code breaking. Yep. So that's that certainly were contributing to the Allied war effort, certainly. Yes, yes. So moving beyond that, that horrible story, um, IBM really in the, in the 40s uh, began to – work on developing calculators that that became a big focus of IBM's business they were still working on tabulating and time recording devices as well as uh, various uh, other kinds of of adding machines and uh, they in 1945 uh, they founded the Watson Scientific Computing Laboratory at Columbia University in New York that that's true that's true um yeah not too long before that uh, shortly before the the war's end in 1944 IBM uh, uh, gave a a large-scale computer, the first of its kind, uh, to the uh, called the Automatic Sequence Controlled Calculator to Harvard. Um, so they're certainly in, interested in education at that point. So we're we're getting close to wrapping up this first episode of the IBM history, and the reason for that is we're very quickly approaching the the time when IBM introduces the first production computer for scientific calculations, which is the 701, and that was introduced in 1952. We'll we'll probably pick up, I would say, probably at the 701 for our next podcast, and we'll we'll move up to uh I think we'll go from the 701 to just before the the personal computer uh era for IBM. Because like we said, this company, very large, has a very long and, and storied history. Um, and, you know, this again, this was like the Cliff's Notes version to the Cliff's Notes version to IBM's history. Because you can't cover everything they've done unless you were to do, you could dedicate a full podcast just to IBM. Like, a, right. like not, not, not an episode, a an entire podcast. podcast. 
Yes, yes. And I mean, there are other important computing developments going on here, like um, uh, the very large project at the Moore School of Electrical Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, in the late 1940s, mid-late 1940s called, I don't know, maybe you've heard of it, ENIAC? Uh, I think so. Wasn't so, that a Muppet? <laughs> no. Oh. Um, but no, I, but, yes, I have heard But yeah, there are... This is a, a period of advanced, uh, advanced scientific development as far as computers are concerned. Because, yeah. um, the code breaking, the, the skills that, uh, computer programmers were using in trying to break codes, um, and trying to advance computing development, this is all accelerating at an immense pace at this point. Yeah. We, we've reached the level of mechanic, electromechanical computers already. And, uh, electronic computers are right around the bend. So let's uh, let's conclude this episode. We will pick up in uh, 1952, and we will move on from there. And uh, you know, you guys, if you have, if you would like us to cover specific companies that are were you know are or were instrumental in the technology fields, let us know. We've talked before about companies like Apple and Microsoft, and both of those will come up pretty soon in this <laughs> podcast series. Um, and let's, you know, if you if there's some other company, maybe Intel or AMD or, uh, you know, I don't know, Infocom, anything you want to hear about, let us know, and we will, we will look into it and cover it. Perhaps not all of them will re- warrant, you know, multi-episodes uh, like IBM does, but we're happy to cover them. And we'll probably have to uh, move off and do something else for a while, come back and do another company podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, we'll we'll definitely put some space between these IBM episodes yeah. and uh, the next focus on a company because, you know, we don't want to just get ourselves stuck into that routine. So, guys, just let us know. You can let us know on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle there is techstuffhsw, or shoot us an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, and Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.